A warm welcome to the Herty School. Herty School. The Herty School. The Herty School. Berlin needs a globally visible public policy school. Understand today, shape tomorrow. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Herty School in Berlin. Welcome, everybody. My name is Alexandre Skandergana. I'm uh, the convener of the Fundamental Rights Research Colloquium of the Herty School Centers for Fundamental Rights and I'm a postdoc at the Center for Fundamental Rights. I'm very pleased today to have one of our affiliated faculty, uh, Mark Dawson, is an affiliated faculty of the Center and a professor of European Law and Governance at the Hertie School. This uh, colloquium today is kindly organized in cooperation with the European Governance Colloquium. Now, coming back to our guest, his research focuses on the relationship between law and policy making in the EU, particularly in the fields of European governance and human rights protection. Mark has held visiting position at the London Schools of Economics and Political Science, the University of Wisconsin, and Harvard Kennedy Schools. He holds a degree from the, Euro from the universities of Edinburgh, Aberdeen, as well as a PhD from the European University Institute in Florence, where he was in 2019 Fernand Brodel Fellow. He is also the leading. Uh, he's, he's also leading a project uh, sponsored, uh, supported by the starting grant of the European Research Calling, Council called Leviathan. You might know Mark for his book on the governance of EU fundamental rights, published in 2017 by Cambridge University Press and other publications. Today, Mark is making us the pleasure to uh, coming to us to discuss a paper that he recently uh, published with, in the prestigious Human Rights Law Review in the last issue. The paper is entitled Fundamental Rights in European Union Policy Making, the Effects and Advantages of Institutional Diversity. We are very pleased to have Mark uh, coming to the, uh, the colloquium to present his work. This is our first event since uh, these last two months, where we are talking about something else than the COVID-19 pandemics. And I'm trusting that we will have uh, as much interesting discussion. So we will proceed as follows. There will be 15, 20 minutes uh, discussion presentation by Mark. And then after that, we will uh, pass to uh, questions and comments by the audience. Mark, if you are ready, the mic is yours. Okay, um, yeah, thank you very much, uh, Skander, for the introduction, for the invitation. Um, I've been unlucky that I've had a teaching clash with this colloquium, so I've, I've missed many interesting talks. I'm looking forward to being uh, more involved in the next academic year, and it's been great to sort of um, see the last couple of sessions where um, I could join. Um, and it's also refreshing for me to talk about something else. So um, some of you will know, and as Skander mentioned, I'm very much involved in economic governance, and that's kind of a project um, that I've been working on the last couple of years. But before I did that, um, I worked on a book that Skander also mentioned, which is about the governance of EU fundamental rights. And actually, this paper really draws a lot on work that I did for that book. And the purpose of that book was a little bit to sort of um, decenter the role of the Code of Justice in EU fundamental rights protection, and actually to look at the role of the other EU institutions and other EU processes, including civil society actors, and how they make up an overall architecture for the protection of fundamental rights in the EU. 
And actually, one of the questions that I started with um, and that I discussed in the book is, well, what is there that makes the EU unique as a human rights actor? So we have, you know, lots of other human rights institutions internationally and in Europe. We have the European Court of Human Rights. Um, but one of the things that sort of makes the EU unique as a human rights actor that's also discussed in other literature is it doesn't just have this kind of supervisory legal body like the Strasbourg Court that can, you know, say no, that can try to strike down um, measures which violate human rights, but it also has the possibility to sort of positively elaborate human rights, right? So it's got it's got political bodies um, that can create legislation that can elaborate fundamental rights. And actually, if you look at some of the more sort of positive stories that EU has to tell surrounding fundamental rights, so think about, for example, EU legislation on equal pay, um, EU legislation in the area of equality law, advances that the EU has made in fields like equality or in data protection, they generally, they emerge from legislation and they don't just emerge from case law or from judicialization. So I think it's sort of kind of important um, to look at this um, institutional element of human rights because it's something that's developed in the EU context that's maybe not developed in other um, transnational human rights institutions. There are though a lot of um, gaps that I found in the literature. So there's, a, there's an assumption that the EU legislative institutions are developing fundamental rights policies, but not a lot of empirical examination of how the EU institutions actually use the competences they have in the EU treaties and um, to advance human rights policies. So I was sort of left with this question, um, to what extent does the EU legislative process actually take fundamental rights concerns seriously? And, and more than that, um, to what extent does the legislative process actually either increase or decrease the standard of fundamental rights protection? So we have legislation going into the legislative process, so different proposals produced by the European Commission that have a fundamental rights dimension to them. Do they look more protective at the end of the legislative process? So when it sort of it comes out of the sausage machine, is it better from a fundamental rights perspective than when it went in? And actually, I didn't see a lot of work that had actually looked at this um, more systematically. And then finally, I was also interested in, well, what factors are driving um, the engagement of the institutions with fundamental rights? So if they take fundamental rights seriously, or if, as I argue, they increase the level of fundamental rights protection in certain circumstances, what is it that makes them do so? What are some of the processes and considerations that might lead certain institutions to engage with fundamental rights? So these are kind of the overall questions of the book, and they're sort of boiled down a little bit um, in the article that I'll present now. Essentially, um, there are two main arguments. So this is kind of the little bit sort of the legal style that I tend to use, sort of front loading the conclusions. Uh, but the two main arguments that I want to discuss are as follows. The first argument I'm making, so I'm finally trying in this paper to say something positive about the EU, because I'm often saying uh, negative things, is that the EU legislative process tends to increase the level, overall standard and level of fundamental rights protection in the legislation. So that's the first argument I make, which is a more kind of empirical argument. And the second arg argument I make is the institutional competition between institutions and institutional dynamics provide a plausible explanation for why the EU legislative process increases the level of fundamental rights protection. So essentially, I'm saying that fundamental rights-based arguments are instrumentalized by institutions. So they use fundamental rights arguments 
to increase their leverage in legislative negotiation, but actually that process makes the overlooking of fundamental rights arguments and concerns more difficult. So the overall conclusion, which kind of relates to the title of this presentation, is that something that's often seen in EU studies is actually being a disadvantage, which is the fact that the EU has such a complicated legislative process. You know, famously, Fritz Sharp called this, called this the joint decision-making trap. There's so many veto players that nothing can get done. And it actually has advantages from a fundamental rights point of view. It means that rights-based arguments that are ignored by one set of interests or one institution are often rectified by another institution in the political process. Okay, so what, what was the method by which I, I did this? Um, essentially, I used a process tracing method to answer the first of these two questions. And I did that by looking at three um, different pieces of EU legislation that had an important fundamental rights component and where the legislative process sort of went on during the period of interest for me, which is after um, the ratification of the Lisbon Treaty and therefore the entry into legal force of the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the EU. And the three um, directives with quite complicated acronyms were the Passenger Name uh, Records Directive, the GDPR, the famous General Data Protection Regulation, which is the reason why Skander said some of the things he did at the beginning. Um, and thirdly, a directive which is actually about confiscating the proceeds of crime. So if you have crim you know, criminal gangs that profit from criminal enterprises, can state authorities um, confiscate some of their assets? So these were the three um, pieces of legislation that I examined. And in order to analyze those pieces of legislation, I had to use a certain baseline to compare them. And what I used for this purpose was actually the opinions of the EU Fundamental Rights Agency. So in many pieces of EU legislation, but not all, once the Commission produces a proposal, um, the EU Fundamental Rights Agency will give an opinion. And essentially, the opinion normally boils down to a series of recommendations for how to make that legislation consistent with the EU fundamental rights acquis. So this, the main baseline here, the main source of that acquis is, of course, the EU's Charter of Fundamental Rights, but it also takes into account international human rights treaties and the ECHR, national constitutions. So essentially, this is used by the FRA to try and improve the level of protection within EU legislation. I then sort of mapped these recommendations against the so-called trilogue tables. So if you're familiar with um, the EU legislative process, one of the main um, processes by which EU legislation is negotiated is through trilogues between the three main EU institutions, so representatives from the Commission, from the European Parliament and from the Council. And normally when they have these trilogue meetings, they produce tables where they map the different positions of each institution. So the idea of these tables is to sort of look, well, get on each article of this particular bill, where do we agree, where do we disagree? So essentially I use these trilogue tables and the different trilogue meetings to look at how the three main institutions responded to recommendations issued by the Fundamental Rights Agency. And if they disagreed about these um, recommendations, how were disagreements of, uh, resolved? So if you know, legislation was amended in a more human rights friendly way or a less human rights friendly way, sort of you could use these tables to look at sort of who was responsible for that. 
I also use certain secondary sources to contextualize this information, media, press releases of different institutions. I also interviewed officials who were part of these trilogues to try and understand sort of a little bit better what was going on um, within this process. Okay, so what, what then um, were my results? What did I find? Essentially, the results um, came down to three uh, tables that look at all of these recommendations from the Fundamental Rights Agency and look at whether they're adopted or not, and if so, who is responsible for um, their adoption. This is the table for the Passenger Name Records Directive, which is fairly typical. Actually, there was a relatively uniform picture across all three of the directives. So I'm not going to go through um, this table in, in detail. Maybe what I can do is just kind of summarize um, what the main takeaways were from the three files. Um, actually, each of the tables are also contained in the article um, that some of you may have looked at. So essentially, I took the kind of three main takeaways from examining um, each of these files. The first takeaway is that the legislative process tends to significantly increase the level of protection. So actually, you see this across all three of the files, that they're more protective of fundamental rights once the legislative process has ended than they are at the beginning of the legislative process. So if you assume, and I think we can probably relatively safely assume that, that the Fundamental Rights Agency of the EU is aiming for a high level of fundamental rights protection, actually the majority of its recommendations found their way into the legislative framework either partially or in full. So that's the case for 22 out of 29 recommendations, and it's the case for the majority of recommendations actually in each of the legislative files. So that's kind of one of the main findings. The second main finding, and this is not that surprising if you look at some of the more general expectations from the literature, that of the main um, political institutions, the most protected is the European Parliament. So if you look at, well, who are responsible for making fundamental rights friendly amendments, it's more likely to be the European Parliament than it is the Council, but it's not uniformly the case. So there are actually cases and examples where it was the Council that took a particular fundamental rights concern more seriously. So that's kind of the second um, main empirical takeaway. And then finally, the third takeaway is, well, what happens if the institutions disagree? So there were, there were some recommendations of the FRA where both institutions simply agreed, yes, we'll, we'll take forward that particular amendment. But there were, of course, examples where they disagreed. So typically where the European Parliament wanted to go forward and the Council was more reticent for security reasons, for other reasons. What we also saw is that where there are disagreements, the eventual compromise solution was more likely to be more protective of rights. So the solution that more took into account the FRA recommendation was likely to occur than the solution that didn't take into account an FRA recommendation. So again, that's uniform across the three files, and it is the case in nine out of the 13 cases of disagreement, is that legislative disagreement tends to result in solutions that are more protective of rights. So of course, we have to introduce caveats. These are only three files. And um, for time reasons, I couldn't really look into more than these three files because actually these were very complicated files, like the General Data Protection Regulation was a saga that lasted years and years and years and, and involved actually almost 50 trilogue meetings. Um, but what it seems is that legislative interaction, at least prima facie, um, is beneficial from a human rights perspective. 
So that sort of is then the question of why. So why does legislative interaction increase the level of fundamental rights protection? And here I adopt um, an institutionalist perspective. So I draw on, on institutionalist theories in public administration and political science. One of the insights of which is that institutions tend to see legal obligations, including fundamental rights, through the lenses of their own institutional roles. So there is no kind of uniform understanding of legal obligations. Legal obligations are likely to be translated into the values and norms of particular institutions. And I think my argument is that that is important to keep in mind when you understand legislative interaction on fundamental rights. So let me give one of the examples, one example of that, which is the example of the council. So I mentioned before that in general terms, the European Parliament tends to be more sensitive to fundamental rights concerns than the council. So I thought it was therefore interesting to look at an example where the opposite was the case, where the council was actually more protective. And one of those examples was actually the directive on um, compensating the proceeds of crime. What you saw in that example is that the council because it contained a variety of member states that had very different legal traditions within those member states, that made the council much more sensitive to particular arguments that were brought by the Fundamental Rights Agency. So one of the examples brought by the agency was the automatic asset confiscation. So confiscation, even in the absence of a successful criminal trial, could damage procedural rights guaranteed in national constitutions of um, defendants. That was a, 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 a concern raised that had more resonance in some member states than it did in others, and therefore should be limited in scope. So it should only be allowable for a particular category of crimes. So what I saw in my interviews was that because the council contained some members from states where this was particularly a concern, that sort of sensitized them to this diversity argument, and it meant therefore they forwarded this argument that the European Parliament didn't take so seriously. We also though see this on the European Parliament side. So one of the features, of course, of the Parliament is that it has political diversity and it has political competition within it, right? And of course, what that means is that some groups within the European Parliament and in the general data protection regulation, um, Jan-Philipp Albrecht and the Greens are a good example of that. They saw a certain advantage to themselves in terms of their profile, maybe in terms of issues that um, mobilized um, voters or mobilized activists within their political group to own particular issues and therefore to push strongly for legislative concessions within a particular file. So when we did interviews and talked about the progress of the general data protection, protection regulation, for which a Green MEP was actually the legislative rapporteur, we saw that um, the Green representatives were particularly stubborn in these trialogue negotiations when it came to fundamental rights concerns. So in, often in trialogues, you have sort of horse trading, you have um, MEPs or the European Parliament willing to let go of certain issues because actually the council will give way in relation to another legislative file. We saw that because of kind of the specialization of the Greens on this topic, because of their attachment to this particular piece of legislation, they're particularly forthright in sort of securing certain data protection safeguards in the GDPR. So essentially the argument I'm making here is that Institutional diversity, the difference between these institutions, the ways in which institutions see their institutional role, 
means that human rights issues that might be overlooked by one institution or overlooked by one dominant group within an institution are often corrected by another group. Finally, what we also saw is that inter-institutional dynamics might also help um, human rights and fundamental rights protection under certain circumstances. So what we see, of course, is that often institutions diverge in their positions and the Council and Parliament often diverge in legislative negotiation. And in that circumstances, they have to leverage different arguments and different resources to either persuade or in some circumstances coerce the other legislative interlocutor to relent and to agree to a compromise position. What we saw was that other in actors within the EU institutional setup were often instrumentalized by one of the legislative actors in order for its position to be advanced and embedded in legislation. So actually the Court of Justice is quite an important actor in this story. So while, for example, both the PNRD and the General Data Protection Regulation were being negotiated, we had several opinions by the Court of Justice, like in famous cases such as Google Spain and Schrems, they essentially reinforced the arguments of one of the parties in the legislative negotiation. So one of the reasons why I think legislative disagreements between the EP and the council in those two directives often ended up being decided in favor of the EP and therefore in favor of a higher level of fundamental rights protection is because the EP could use this litigation as an argument. Because it could essentially say, well, either you agree to our amendment now or our amendment is not included, but then this legislation might be overturned by the Court of Justice because it's inconsistent with a particular case law. So you also saw that sort of there's this competition between institutions and actually external actors can be instrumentalized in order to advance fundamental rights arguments within this. There are other actors that were also relevant here. So in the particular case of the GDPR, um, in the EU's old data protection regime set up the so-called Article 29 Working Party, which is responsible for overseeing EU data protection rules, they were also quite influential. So the chair of the Article 29 Working Party sent letters um, highlighting some of the recommendations of the Fundamental Rights Agency just before some of these crucial trilogue meetings. And again, what we discovered from our interviews is that particular MEPs and other actors within the European Parliament, they played a certain informal role in encouraging the Article 29 Working Party to play a role in the legislative process. So in that sense, human rights arguments are being instrumentalized to achieve legislative breakthroughs. Sometimes those legislative breakthroughs don't have that much to do with human rights concerns. But via this process of interinstitutional competition, the cause of human rights actually might be indirectly advanced. So this is the way in which we try to explain um, the empirical picture that we see through the three tables. Okay, let me then try and conclude. Um, hopefully the argument is relatively clear. And essentially the argument is that there's something like a diversity dividend regarding the relationship between human rights and the EU's institutional structure. So the pluralism of that institutional structure, the fact that there are so many institutions representing such a variety of different interests, the fact that there are many veto players might have advantages in terms of the ability of the EU legislative process to reflect different human rights arguments. Finally, um, we, there are two kind of implications, broader implications that we can draw from this. One of the implications is about the pre-legislative process. 
So one of the sort of reflections I had on that is, well, why were so few of these human rights arguments that the Fundamental Rights Agency raised, why weren't they dealt with by the Commission already in the pre-legislative process? So the fact that so many fundamental rights issues had to be resolved in the legislative process actually tells you something about how poor um, the pre-legislative process is from a human rights perspective. So actually the Commission has done a lot to try and improve this, doing things like fundamental rights impact assessments, consultations with human rights actors, but maybe that's not wielding very good results. So that's kind of one more indirect conclusion. The second conclusion is, well, maybe this shows us that there are reasons to defend the traditional community method, so the traditional way of doing EU legislation. So we have had lots of challenges to the community method in recent years, right? So we have an increasing tendency to develop EU policy outside of the normal categories of EU law, outside of the normal legislative process. So think about the Turkey agreement, think about other agreements the EU is undertaking with third states dealing with irregular migration. Think about the European stability mechanism. These are all things happening outside of the normal legislative process. If we think that the legislative process has advantages in terms of integrating fundamental rights concerns, that's another reason to resist actually this development of channeling EU law and EU authority into these new mechanisms. So these are more general conclusions. Actually, there's quite a lot in the paper that I, I didn't discuss, um, but I think that's enough and I'm looking forward to, to hearing your comments and, and questions on this. Thanks. Thanks for listening. You can find more on our website at herdy-school.org.